you can honestly say that, you know, to, to actually develop skills that will make relationships healthy in your life is something that you would really be open to hearing. That's, that's really what we're going to talk about tonight. Actually learning skills to help us in relationships. And I believe that Jesus is the most relatable person. He understands people. He understands how we're wired. He understands to help us in our skills to relate to others in a healthy way. And let's pray tonight that God would open our heart, that we would leave this place going, okay, I know how Jesus does it. I, I, I see why people were attracted to him, why people wanted to hang out, you know, why people wanted to come and listen to him. They just loved him, and there's a reason for it, and I'm going to share some of those thoughts tonight with us. So, Father... I thank you tonight for who you are, how amazing you are, and the way you instruct us and in how we need to treat one another and relate to each other in a healthy way. I, I ask, Father, tonight, in those areas of weakness and brokenness, the areas that we've struggled in, I ask tonight that you would pinpoint them, you'd speak into our lives with clarity, and that we would leave here tonight with a deeper understanding and a deeper grasp of what it takes to relate. And I, I'll pray just an understanding in our minds, but also an enablement by your Holy Spirit to be more effective in our relationship with other people and build healthy relationships. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. A number of years ago, I, I came across this incredible story. Lady was uh, heading on a trip. She was in the airport terminal and she'd Forgotten to bring anything with her, she decided to go to one of the little stores in the terminal there and look for a book. So she bought a book, and she was kind of hungry, so she bought a package of cookies. And so she went to the, her gate and was sitting down, and she noticed this gentleman sat down, not, not right beside her, but the seat you know, beyond that, so there was an empty seat between them. And she, she literally became really engrossed in the book she was reading and noticed that the guy opened up the package of cookies, and he took one, started eating the cookie. And uh, she got a little indignant. She goes, what's this guy doing? He's eating my cookie, right? So she reached over and, you know, decided, well, I'm going to eat my cookie. And, and so she's eating the cookie. And then eventually he, he had the audacity to go for another cookie. So he's starting to eat the second cookie. And she's getting a little more terse inside of her soul. And she reaches over and grabs another cookie and starts eating. Well, eventually they went through the whole package of cookies. There was one cookie left at the end. He grabbed it, broke it in half, took the one half, and left, and uh, left the other half for her. And she just like was just, you know, chagrined on the inside. She's just fuming. She went to their seat in the plane. She decided she needed a tissue from her purse. She opened up her purse, and there were her package of cookies. <laughs> you know, at that point, she's deeply embarrassed by her behavior and her harsh feelings towards the guy who actually they were eating from his package of cookies, you know. So I think it's important sometimes when we're, when we're evaluating situations that we actually get it straight. And how many here can honestly admit that there's times that you've been in a context that you've actually misread what's going on? You know, you just didn't understand what was really happening. And we make judgments in our mind all the time. You know, Isaiah talks about the kind of person that's really going to connect with God. And in Isaiah 58, I was reading it this past week, he talks about the fast or the, or the, or the idea of pursuing after God. And in verse 9, Isaiah says it this way, Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, in other words, we're not oppressing people, with the pointing of the finger and malicious talk. 
you know, there's other things that he talks about, other aspects of life that helps us bring us closer to God. But one of the things that God warns us against is actually blaming, fault-finding, and criticizing others. You know, it's very easy to do that. We get upset, we get frustrated. And all of us in this room, at one point or another, have probably done all of the above, you know, in a different context. And so what we're being told here by the, by the prophet Isaiah is that we have to be a little slower in our evaluation or our, our understanding of a context. Jesus picks up this theme in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's what we've been looking at in the last number of weeks. And in chapter seven, verse one, we get this word, don't judge or you will be judged. Now, I think that this, this verse literally has impacted our culture in a very profound way. I, I think for a lot of us, first of all, I think we've misunderstood this text, number one, and we've misapplied it. And I wanna speak about, a little bit about that because in our culture today, this is the new mantra, right? You know, live and let live, don't, you know, don't make any assessments, don't make any judgments on every, anybody. And yet, as we're about to see the context of this expression and what's happening in the seventh chapter will give us a better insight and understanding of what Jesus actually meant and how you and I need to hear what Jesus is actually saying here. So the question is, does this mean then, if Jesus says judge, don't judge lest you be judged, that we, we turn a blind eye to, that, uh, to sin? In other words, that's, that's what we're doing with this text. We just turn away and go, well, we're not judging anybody. Matter of fact, in our culture today, we don't even use the word sin. That word has disappeared, right? We'll talk about failures, faults, problems, you know, brokenness. We have all kinds of labels, but, you know, it's a theological term, and God's basically saying when you and I deviate from his path, God calls it sin. And so when we deviate from the path, there's a consequence to it, and that's the fruit of sin. And it's usually brokenness and heartache and broken relationships, so does Jesus actually say to us then that we just turn a blind eye to when we see sin happening in people's lives? Or does it mean we never correct anyone? We never speak into people's lives. We say nothing about what's going on. Does it mean that if we never judge anyone for anything, that in turn we will not be judged for our sins? Because the next verse Jesus says, with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So in our minds we're going, well listen, if I don't judge anybody, then I'm off the hook. No one will judge me. But we need to understand that's a poor understanding of the text because we, we keep reading the Bible. We realize at the end, number one, I've already suggested to you, our sin judges us because there's a consequence to our behavior. Number two, eventually God's going to judge our behavior at the end because we're forfeiting an amazing relationship with someone who really cares about us. And isn't that so often the truth when we, when we you know, make bad, bad decisions and uh, we hurt one another that often we end up forfeiting relationships? That's what happens when we do that. So is Jesus really saying, don't judge completely? Is that what he means? Don't judge or you will be judged. So none of us, I think, you know, the, basically the Bible is basically saying that only God is truly capable of being the perfect judge. I think this is, we're getting closer to the meaning now. I don't think any of us can render a totally non-biased assessment. And therefore, ultimately, only God can truly adequately judge anybody. 
in this room, we were all coming, and I was thinking about this morning, we all walk in this room, we all have backgrounds, we all have biases, you know, I have a pair of glasses on, I have, you know, obviously some issue with my eyes, and these glasses are designed to help me to see more clearly, isn't that true? And so what we need to understand tonight is every one of us in this room, we're walking in here with a certain bias. We're not, we're not blank slates, folks. You know, we've been affected by our backgrounds, we've been affected by our culture, We've been affected by people around us, and we're coming in listening to something, and we're filtering everything we're hearing through a lens. That's what you need to understand. And so only God has the perfect lens to look at every situation, because not only does he see the external things, God knows the heart condition of every single person. He knows every one of your backgrounds. Isn't that amazing? God, God's love for each one of us is absolutely incredible. He understands where we're coming from, and only he can make the right assessments in all of our lives. So when you and I are making assessments, a lot of times we don't have it right. We just are missing the point because we're coming in with a filter in our minds. So what did Jesus mean by this opening text of Matthew 7? That's what I want to unlock tonight. What did he really mean by that? I think what Jesus is talking about here is how to have healthy relationships and build meaningful community. You and I, that's, that's, it's, it takes work to build healthy relationships. Anybody know that's true? Actually, it takes effort. And Jesus is now going to give us some skills and tools that you and I can build meaningful, healthy relationships, which in turn builds healthy community. And I think that's powerful and important. Uh, but what happens so often in our lives, uh, and it's happened to all of us, everyone in this room probably can share a story where you've been emotionally wounded by someone. Anybody here can honestly say you can think of an immediately a story where you've been emotionally wounded by somebody? Anybody? Well, there's a few of you. Okay. Rest of you, can I check your pulse beat? <laughs> you know? Right. He says, it's happened, right? And so what do we tend to do when we've been emotionally and wounded is that we start creating barriers in our life to protect ourselves. How many know that's the truth? We don't want to be hurt again. It, it makes total sense. Why would, I, why would I want this kind of pain to come back into my life? And so we start to isolate and, and block out things so we're, we're protecting ourselves. The only problem with that is, is that it gets lonely. Do you realize that? You know, we, you know really love is a huge risk. And we get lonely when we do that. And the problem is we become more self-absorbed. We're protecting ourselves. We become self-absorbed. And then, uh, and all at the same time, we become more lonely. But then another thing begins to happen. We become more critical. We actually get more critical of other people. We just go, oh, they've got an agenda. You know, trust has been eroded and that kind of thing. And that's, that's really tragic. So I'm going to argue that it's not always live, easy living in a family. How many could say you, when you were growing up, there was a few conflicts in your family? Anybody have siblings? I had siblings. You had a few conflicts. There was a few moments, tense moments, right? You know, how long does it take you to use the bathroom? Like, I grew up in a house, there was four kids, right? There's one bathroom. You know, today we have, you know, one kid and four bathrooms. But when I grew up, it was like four kids and one bathroom. You know, there was a lot more going on. You had to negotiate time in the bathroom. Some of you can't even relate to this. Some of you are smiling, going, I totally get what he's saying. You know? Learning how to get along with each other. And it's, it's healthy, folks. It's healthy to learn to work through issues. And I want to say something. You know, this morning, one of the couples was here, and they said, Pastor, this is, 
One couple walked by and they said, this is, next Sunday is going to be our 57th wedding anniversary. Amazing. And then this other, he said, the couple behind us, today is their 52nd wedding anniversary. Then this young guy in our church, he's young to me, he says, Pastor, 18 years ago, you married my wife and I, you know? So how many know when you have years in relationship with one another, you've had to deal with things. You've had to work through issues to make those relationships work. And how we say to people, it's worth it. And the longer you go, the better it gets. When you learn how to work through things, you become a better person. The other person grows. You grow. It's amazing what starts happening. So it's not always easy to live in families. It's not always easy to live in a, in a home. It's not always easy to live even in a church community because sometimes we disappoint each other, right? How many here can honestly say, I've never made a mistake in my entire life? Raise your hand. Nobody's hands up. Because we've all made mistakes. We all recognize that. We're all, you know, weak. We falter. We make mistakes. I love the story told in the fourth century. This is from the sayings of the Desert Fathers. A monk came to his monastic leader in Egypt. And this leader's name was Pullman. And Pullman, he says to him, you know, I'm troubled in spirit and I want to leave this place. And Pullman says, well, why? Well, I've heard unedifying stories about one of the brothers here. Well, Pullman says, are they true? Oh, yes. The brother who told me is a man of trust. Pullman says, well, the brother who told you is not a man of trust, for if he was so, he would not have told you the stories. You see, when God heard the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah, he actually came down to check it out for himself. Let me think that's amazing. It actually says that in the book of... Genesis, that God came down to see for himself. He wasn't just interested in hearsay. You know, one of the things you find out in the book of Proverbs, it says when someone comes to you first, you hear a story a certain way, that's the way you think it is. Until the second person comes in and tells you their side of the story. Sometimes you go, is this the same story? You know? So sometimes, you know, you can get worked up. Somebody can come to you and they can tell you a bunch of stuff and really get your juices going. Anybody ever have that experience where somebody comes and really gets you worked up and then a little later, you find out the rest of the story. You know what I mean? Isn't that the truth? So I would just say we have to be very careful because when people are talking to us, you're hearing it from their perspective. And as far as they're concerned, that's the absolute truth. That's the way they see it. That's the way they're interpreting that situation. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm saying that's the way they see it. Somebody else comes along, sees the same situation. They interpret it totally differently. Because you and I come from our perspective in these situations. So he says to them, you know, well, listen, I've seen this with my own eyes. Pullman looks down, picks up a wisp of straw, and he says, what is this? Straw. Then he reached up and touched the roof of the cell and said, what's this? A beam that holds up the room. Then Pullman said, take it into your heart that your sins are like this beam and that your brother's sins are like the wisp of straw. What he's basically saying is, look, he's making the same point that Jesus is driving at. We have to be careful. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, we're being warned of two dangers that threaten relationships and destroy communities. So tonight, I'm going to focus on the two warnings, and then next week, I'm going to talk about two instructions related to the same thing. But let's take a look at the two things Jesus warns against. First one is a judgmental attitude. Do you know there's nothing more dangerous to a relationship than to be continually criticized? Continually, you know, somebody's continually finding fault. How many know that the Bible says that love covers a multitude of sins? Do you know when you're relating to people after a while, you start realizing we all have idiosyncrasies. Isn't that true? 
And really, when you love somebody, you have to overlook a few things. Hey, listen, I've been married over 40 years. My patty will tell you, I've had to overlook a few things, you know? It's the truth. They ha you have to overlook some things if you're going to stay in relationship. That's just the way this is. We're not talking, you know, abusive things. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the ordinary things of life. Some people can drive you crazy after a while. Go, really, this is irritating. But, you know, when you really love someone, you just accept this is who this person is. I have to accept that about them. Now... When we have that critical spirit, listen to what starts happening. We, it starts eroding relationship. Now, Jesus, I say Jesus, God in the book of Proverbs says this. There are six things the Lord hates. Isn't that interesting? God hates some things. So what does God hate? There's seven things detestable to him. And what you're going to notice, they're attitudinal things. Number one, haughty eyes. What's haughty eyes? That's another way of saying pride. Somebody's just full of themselves. God doesn't like that. You know, a lying tongue. You know, God's looking for honesty in the inner parts, truth in their inner parts. See, if we're lying to ourselves, we're living in a state of self-deception and we're gonna be lying to people. Not because we want to, we're just doing it. You know, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man or woman who stirs up conflict in the community. Those are negative things according to God. He's going, look, God is interested in the building up of relationships. How many know God's for people and he's for healthy relationships? So anything that would diminish and tear that down, God's opposed to that. We need to know that. Now, let's take a look here at Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm gonna have you turn there to Matthew 7. We're gonna read five verses. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Now, how many of you know this is hyperbole? He's exaggerating to make a point. He's basically saying, yeah, you got a problem in your own life, but you're noticing this other problem of a minor degree in another person's life. And you know what I've kind of noticed? How many kind of are aware that sometimes the thing that bugs you the most about someone else is probably the thing that you're guilty of yourself? That's why it annoys you so much. So sometimes when I go, well, why is this bothering me? I gotta take a look inside first. Why does this annoy me? Maybe I'm doing the same thing to somebody else, you know? And I don't even, I, and I'm unaware of it because there's a lot of things that we're unaware of. You know, awareness is a very powerful thing. I'm convinced that every day you and I unintentionally sin. How many think that's probably true? There's things that we're doing that probably annoy God, and this is unintentional. And the Bible says, if we have fellowship with one another, then the blood of Jesus Christ keeps cleansing us from sin. So I'm so thankful that God is so loving and forgiving that even though I'm annoying him at times, he's just going, he doesn't even know what he's doing. He doesn't even know how much this bugs me. I'm just going to keep loving him and forgiving him. How much that's amazing that God can do that with us? Aren't you impressed with God? I'm really impressed with God, you know? He just doesn't say, you guys, I created you, but what a, what a mess you make of things. No, he goes, I love you guys, and I'm going to keep working with you. I'm glad he doesn't give up on us. He says, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own? You hypocrite, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, notice what he's saying here. He's saying, look, you may have an issue but before you go correcting people, take care of what's going on in your own life first. 
Then when you can see clearly and you have a little more charity and grace in your soul and maybe tears in your eyes, maybe you'll be able to help other people deal with the issues in their life. That's what Jesus is bringing out. I love what Craig Bloomberg brings out. He said the word judge in the Greek language, which is the language of the New Testament, is the word krino. And it has more than one meaning, okay? It has a semantic range. And it can imply to analyze or evaluate as well as to condemn or avenge. So we're getting two different meanings now. So when we read this, do not judge, I think what Jesus is talking about is that we're not allowed to condemn people, okay? But we are called to evaluate people. And the classic story is found in John's Gospel, chapter 8, where a woman is caught in adultery. Remember the story? She's brought to Jesus. Here Jesus has been talking about forgiveness, and, and he's relating to sinners. So what do these Pharisees do? They bring a woman actually trapped in the act of adultery. Now, how in the world did they catch her in this? Come on now, let's be realistic. Somebody was engaged in this with her. We don't hear about the perpetrator. We just hear about this poor woman. She's cast at Jesus' feet. And they said, what are you going to do about this? I mean, she was caught in the very act of adultery. And so in the Old Testament, the law said that she should be put to death. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? Here Jesus now in the, is God in the flesh. What does he do? He says, he sits down and he starts scribbling on the sand. And then he says the statement. He says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he just continues to write on the sand. Now, a lot of people speculate what he was writing. Was he writing down, you know, the sins of the people that were standing there? We don't know. Speculation, right? I don't know what he was doing. All I know is, can you imagine standing in the presence of the living God, Jesus, and he's telling you, if you're without fault, go ahead and throw the first rock. And so the first person, now all of a sudden is an awareness. No, I can't really throw a stone because I'm at fault. And eventually it says, from the oldest to the youngest, they all walked away. Jesus had his head down. When he looked up, he said to the woman, where are your accusers? She said, they've all left. Isn't that powerful? The only person that could have thrown the first rock was now looking at her. He was faultless and without sin. You know what he said? Neither do I condemn thee. I get this picture that Jesus is not interested in condemning. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that God did, you know, Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. Aren't you glad tonight that our God is not a condemning God? And I'm going to just make this, this clear in our minds that when you and I are condemning, we are unlike Christ. To be Christ-like, to be godly means I'm not a condemning person. My job is not to condemn people. Listen, I hear stories every single week as a pastor. You know, these people are already under tremendous self-condemnation. What they need to know is there's forgiveness in God's grace, that God can forgive, that God is not going to hold these things against us. He's a forgiving God. He's not here to condemn us. And all of us in this room can say, man, there's been moments in my life, thank God he didn't condemn me but he forgave me. But then Jesus didn't stop there. He said, go, but now go and sin no more. He didn't condone. You see, here's the problem in the church world today. You know, in the past, the church has been very critical, very judgmental, very harsh, very condemning. Come on, that's where it's been. But that's not the problem as much today. Yeah, there's people still doing that. But they're really in a minority position in the church world today. You know where we've gotten? We've, we've become the great accommodators. Our big attitude is, you know, it's no big thing. Can I point out to you that when you and I act as if sin is no big thing, it's not a very loving thing. See, Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I'm not condoning this behavior. And why is not Jesus condoning sinful behavior? 
because he loves us so much, he knows that that behavior is destroying us. That's why. And we have to get to that state in our own thinking. Bloomer goes on to say, the former senses are clearly commanded of believers. In other words, we need to evaluate things. Matter of fact, 1 John 4, 1 says we're to test the spirits to see if, whether they be of God. So we have to evaluate. As a matter of fact, in this very seventh chapter of Matthew, he says, watch out for false teachers and their teachings. Look at the fruit of their lives and recognize where they're coming from. He's calling us to make an evaluation. But what he's not calling us to do is make judgments and condemn. Everybody getting the picture now? I'm, I'm starting to lay it out a little layered so you can see what he's really saying. We are called upon to evaluate, but to condemn and avenge are reserved solely for God. Even on those occasions when we render a negative evaluation of others, our purpose should always be constructive and not retributive. And it's a nice way of saying, listen, when we see somebody in the wrong, our goal isn't to shame them, our goal isn't to embarrass them. Our goal isn't to put them down and make ourselves superior to them. No. Our goal is to have tears in our eyes to help them, lift them up, and to help them move past the struggle that they're experiencing. That's what this is all about. And when you look at Jesus, he's doing this over and over and over again. We're not to tear people down. We're to build people up. So Jesus is literally saying, stop criticizing others. He's rebuking that censorous spirit. And if you're looking for faults in people's lives, you will not be disappointed. You know what? I have faults, you have faults. People, you know, if you want to find them, you will, you'll find them. But you see, I believe love covers a multitude of sins. When I really love someone, I go, yeah, I see the problem in their life, but I also see all these amazing things about them. And I choose not to focus on this. I choose to focus on that. And I'm so glad that's what God tends to do too. And yes, there's times in our lives where God goes, I'm gonna deal with this thing in your life because it's hindering you from becoming the person I designed you to become. You know, I love the story of this guy who went to see a doctor. He was in an acute state of anxiety. He says, doctor, I'm dying. He says, I don't know what to do. I mean, everywhere I touch, it hurts. I touch my head, it hurts. I touch my leg, it hurts. I touch my stomach, it hurts. I touch my chest, it hurts. You've got to help me, doc. Everything is hurting. The doctor gave him a complete examination. He said, Mr. Smith, I have good news and bad news. The good news is you're not dying. The bad news is you have a broken finger. You guys aren't tracking with me. Everywhere he touched, it hurt. He had a broken finger. Okay? You say, well, why is that? Why, what, what, do you, what point are you making? Simply this. As, you know, <clears throat> when we have a critical heart, all we do is criticize. We're the problem. We don't know that. We're the ones with the issue. That's what I'm getting at. We, you know, we have the broken fingers. See, everything, we're seeing everything through a certain lens. Robert Muntz points this out, the admonition not to judge is often taken incorrectly to imply um, that believers are not to make moral judgments about anyone or anything. But that is not what is intended. It's clear from verses 15 to 20, which warn of false prophets who, be can, who can be known by the fruit they bear. Jesus does not ask us to lay aside our critical faculties, but rather to resist the urge to speak harshly of others. Leon Moore, Moore says, don't judge does not mean don't think. Or as John Stott writes, this is not a requirement to be blind, but rather a plea to be generous. I like these comments. Jesus is warning against the opposite attitude where everything goes as well. 
It's not really an expression of a lack of indifference, but rather a call to have a genuine concern. We're going to see that in a few minutes. Nowhere does Jesus suggest that the speck in the brother's eye not be corrected. We must be careful in our attempts to help others that we have a proper estimation of ourselves. That's what he's getting at. You know, don't, don't think you're superior. Do you know everyone in this room is capable of doing terrible things? And if you don't believe that, you haven't read the Bible carefully. You get the right context, our behaviors are going to change. I mean, if there was a shortage of food, you're going to see people's behaviors changing in a hurry. You know, I've read the book of Jeremiah when there was a siege around the city. You know, it says people were even eating their own children. I know that sounds terrible, but that's the truth. So, you know, don't, you know, when people talk about how wonderful humanity is, I said, oh, it just depends on the context, you know. It's easy when we all are full and we have a happy life and we all have what we need. We can be very nice. But boy, when you're struggling to survive, people can get pretty nasty in a hurry. And that's the truth. We need to know that. As a matter of fact, Paul says in Galatians, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person how? Gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. You know, just remember, but for the grace of God, I could be in the other person's shoes. I could, it could be a reverse situation. How do you want people to correct you? Harshly or gently, you know? Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. I think one of the most notable stories in the Bible is the story of King David. Remember when he committed adultery? And then he had the woman's husband killed because he had sent him into battle and made sure he went into the very heart of the conflict where he was killed. And David's attitude was when he heard the report he was dead, he goes, well, that's war. And you know what, this went on for a year. He's a dictator, right? I mean, think about it. He's a monarch. He's a king. No one can judge or get on top of what he's doing. But he was not sleeping well for a year. I can read that in the scriptures, in the Psalms. And one day God sends his prophet Nathan to go talk to David. And that's a very powerful story. So Nathan comes along and says, you know, we, have this, we had a situation in the kingdom, David. There was a very wealthy man, and he had servants and all kinds of sheep. And then, you know, in the ancient in the uh, in the world, in the Asian culture, hospitality is a big thing, and someone came to his home. And he said, the man that was a servant had one little lamb, and it was a family pet. He took that lamb, and he killed it, and he fed his guests with that lamb. And David was so indignant by the injustice of it, he said, that man should suffer because of doing that. And Nathan says, you're that man. Did I not give you all these things, and you treated you know, Uriah this way? You see, it's really easy to go, yeah, I see the problem. But when God puts his finger on our lives, it's a new story. Let me move on to the second danger that threatens relationships and destroys community is a lack of discernment. One of the reasons we need to be able to distinguish and determine if things are right or wrong is that sin always possesses a problem not only for ourselves but for others. We need to see sin as the enemy, not people. We need to see what people are doing can be destructive to themselves and eventually even destroy the lives of other people around them. You know, we have to be able to discern what's right or wrong. Now, if Jesus, you know, wasn't, wasn't to judge anybody, I'm going to read verse 6. It's going to really throw us for a loop because I think some of us are just playing gullible at times because we believe everything and trust everything. No, we have to be a little more discerning than that. Look what Matthew 7, 6 says. Do not give dogs what is sacred, and do not throw your pigs, uh, pearls to pigs. 
Now, I don't know about you. If Jesus is not trying to uh, offend anybody, he's calling people dogs and pigs. I don't know about you. That's kind of offensive. Don't you think that's I think that might be a little offensive. Anybody sitting here going, wow, that's amazing that he said that. What is he saying? He's saying, be careful that you don't give good things to people who can't appreciate what you're sharing with them. Have you ever had those moments where you're talking to somebody and you realize they don't want to listen to this? You know, just back off. They're not ready yet. It's not that they're bad. It's just that their hearts are closed. It's just that their minds are blinded to the truth. This is not the season in their life for them to receive. You know, there is a season for all of us. And there are moments of opportunity. How do you know that a person's not open and ready? I talk to a lot of people. I can tell just by their response. Are they open or closed? You know, if they're open, I keep talking. If they're closed, I don't. I'm not going to throw these precious things to people that, you know, have no interest at this time in their life because, you know, they can get rowdy about it. It says if you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So Jesus never tells us to lack discrimination. It's important that we have the ability to discern what is right and what is wrong. So the question is, how can I learn to do that? Well, that's a good question. How can I become more discerning? I might think that might be important. I have a little more discernment in relationships. Well, listen to what Jesus says. Oh, sorry, Paul says in Ephesians. Then we will no longer be infants. Now, an infant is an underdeveloped person. Anybody agree with that? They still have to mature, okay? Tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. So in other words, he said, listen, I want you all to mature. I want you to grow up. I want you to know what's right and what's wrong. So how do I know what's right or wrong, Pastor? It's so confusing today. You know, years ago, people used to say this is right. Now they say it's wrong. Now people are saying what was once considered wrong is now considered right. I'm confused. Anybody, how many, can you imagine growing up today? Some of us have been around for a while. I feel bad for young people. It's kind of a confusing world, isn't it? How many think it might be a little confusing? What used to be wrong is now right. What's right is now wrong. Aren't, aren't people a little confused in our culture? Can I just tell you what's really going on? This will really help us all. It goes all the way back to the garden. All the way back to that temptation in the garden when the serpent came and said, did God really say this? In other words, you know, God's keeping, you, keeping back from you something that you could know, the knowledge of good and evil. And the problem with you and I determining in ourselves what is good and what is wrong is that we're not smart enough. We don't have the wisdom to know what the final outcome of these decisions are because I believe most people, when they make bad decisions, they think they're doing the right thing. You see, Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to a person, but in the end it leads to death. They actually are thinking they're making the right decision. Why would they make the stupid decision that later on was going to destroy their lives? Nobody in their right mind is going to do that, but we're not always in our right mind. So often we're motivated by present temptation and desire to meet a longing and a hurt inside of our soul until we go down the wrong track. Think about what God's word does. God's word is a standard. God says, this is always right. This is always wrong. This will bring life. That will bring death. When you do what I'm telling you to do, I'm saying it for your good and not for your evil. Why do you have parents growing up teaching you the difference between right and wrong? You know, hey, don't touch that stove. It's hot. Oh, why? No, you'll find out. You get burnt, right? And how many people we just go along and we're going, I just make one stupid decision after another because you lack discernment. So how do I get it, Pastor? How do I get this discernment? You get to know God. How do I get to know God? You get to know his word. Listen to what Hebrews says. 
We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. First of all, it takes an attitude. Lord, I'm here to learn. You know, a humble person is a person who's ready to receive instruction. A humble person is a ready to receive correction. When you're wrong, you just say, hey, bring it on. Explain to me what I'm doing wrong. A, a wise person actually will listen to rebuke. A foolish person, that means an ungodly person, you can't tell them anything. They know everything. You can't correct them. They get offended. We're no longer listening. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk and not solid food. How many is using an analogy? Babies can't take solids yet. They have to grow into taking solids. How many know that's true? Come on, all the moms, yeah, yeah, pastor, yeah. You start with milk, you know, then pablum, and then you kind of work them up, right, to move to solid food. He goes... This writer to the Hebrews is saying, most of you are like babies still. You're still nursing. That's sad. He said, you guys should be eating solid food by now. You should be teaching other people, but you guys are still at the pablum stage. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness or what is right. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Is that powerful? See, you know why I'm, I bug you guys? You go, I get tired of hearing you, Pastor. You keep telling us, read our Bibles every day. Hey, I want you to become knowledgeable about what God has to say so that you can develop discernment. You can distinguish between what is good and what is evil. So that you can be asking God, show me the right path. There is a path that leads to everlasting life, and there's a broad road that leads to destruction. I'm noticing a lot of people on the broad road. Anybody else notice them? Yeah, I'm trying to pull them off that road. That's my goal. You know, but everyone kind of goes in our, our society today goes, you know, I don't know if it's really the loving thing to correct somebody, pastor. You don't know what love is. Let me tell you, let me remind us of what real love is. Oh, I love it. All these young couples go, pastor, can you, can you read 1 Corinthians 13? It's our favorite chapter. We're madly in love with each other. Okay, let me read it to you. Love is patient. Oh, I'm married to this person. I didn't know they had this irritating habit. Well, you've got to be patient. You see, when you love somebody, you have to be patient. Right? right. Well, you know, right. I know you guys are patient. I've been your pastor for so long. Isn't that right? You've had to put up with me so long. That takes patience. But I've had to put up with you. That took patience too right? It's a two-way street. Isn't that true in every relationship? You know, love is kind. It does not envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. You know, I, I love the story of this guy. He went to his counselor and said, you know, we're having a real problem here. He says, every time we have an argument, my wife becomes historical. He goes, no, you mean hysterical. No, no, I mean historical. She just brings up everything I've done wrong from the past. Can I just tell you that that's true in both sides of the relationship? And when you are doing that, you are killing the future of your relationship. Because I think love expresses itself in forgiveness. And forgiveness doesn't hold record of wrongs. If you want to move forward in a relationship, you've got to put the past behind you. And when you do that, you have a new future. Is that amazing? I believe that forgiveness is the gift you give to people who don't deserve it. 
And when you do that, it's such an empowering thing. You don't have to live as a victim any longer. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that powerful? It rejoices with the truth. If this person's believing a lie, that's not love. If they're being deceived, you think letting them stay in their state of deception is a loving thing to do? Let me ask you a question. If somebody is about ready to fall over a cliff, what would be the natural response and you're nearby? What would you do, Roger? You'd pull them away. You, you mean, if they weren't paying attention and ready to step off, I even think some of you would get aggressive enough to push them to safety. How many here would probably naturally push the person to safety? Come on now. Oh, and they'd fall down, scrape their knee, and they'd go, what's wrong with you? You just pushed me down. Come here. Look down there. That's where you were headed. Oh, okay. Get really sober in a second, right? You see, we have to understand something. We're so, oh, I'm so offended. I'm going, listen, if somebody's falling off a cliff morally, what are you going to do? Just let them go off the cliff? Are you going to grab them and hang on to them and say, you know what, I love you so much, I'm not letting you go down off that cliff. <laughs> You're going to destroy your life. You know? Man, I, I, I'm just trying to give you visual pictures. Love means I'm willing to risk the relationship with tears in my eyes and say, hey, I beg of you, don't go down this path. You know, I've sat in my office begging people not to go down a path they were explaining to me because I said it was only going to destroy their life. And they said, I don't care, I'm going to do it anyways. I felt at that moment like Jesus where the rich young ruler walks away when he has the opportunity for eternal life. You know what, Jesus was sad. He loved them. Listen, when people make bad decisions, you don't walk around going, oh, I'm rejoicing over their stupid decision. Of course not. If you love people, it'll tear you up on the inside. That's the tough part of this job. You don't know about that part, but it's there. You know, God's not committed to making us happy, Charles Colson writes, rather to make us holy. But I'm gonna say this. If you become holy, you will become happy. Because holy means to be whole, and that's really what we want in our lives. And then Carlo Corretto says something very fascinating. He says, we're not happy because we are unforgiving, and we are unforgiving because we feel superior to others. That's a very strong statement. You know, I think we have to just make decisions. You know what? I made a decision. I'm going to love people anyways. I'm going to forgive people anyways. I'm going to choose to be a loving, forgiving person. That's a choice we have to make. You know, we've all been wounded in this room. There's not one of you can say, oh, I've never been wounded, Pastor. I know that that's not true. I know that that's the human experience, the human condition and relationships. We're going to get hurt. But we have to make a choice to be forgiving, understanding, and loving. We need to remind ourselves of that. But let me just uh, close. I'm going to share a story that I think was uh, kind of interesting. D James Edwards says, like many people, I was shocked by the catastrophe on Mount Everest in 1996. This is when a bun bunch of mountaineers died. He said, one of the most disturbing sideshows in that whole circus of tragedies was the story of two Japanese climbers who in their summit bid bypassed three injured, starving, freezing climbers. And the reason they did it was even though they had sufficient provisions, they didn't stop to render the aid to these stranded climbers because they did not want to jeopardize their own ascent. If you know anything about mountain climbing, you have to kind of condition your body at the higher altitudes. And eventually at the very end, when you get to the very top, it's like sucking air through a straw. I mean, it is really difficult to, to be a mountain climber because of the elevation. They didn't want to jeopardize the ascent to the top, so they walked by these guys, and the tragedy was... You know what? They died. 
The action of the two climbers and the statements attempting to justify them were, in my judgment, a callous and contemptible example of egotism. And he said, this is James Edwards, he's a preacher. He said, I kept telling the story to illustrate this whole element of, you know, how could you do that kind of a thing? But then a few years later, I was leading a college study tour to the Middle East. I was hiking up Mount Sinai. I've been to this region. I, I opted out of this climb. I didn't know I could do it. This is a very difficult climb, 7,500 feet up, you know. And they do it at night. You can't see where you're going. Oh, yeah, and I don't like heights, so I, 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 I opted out of this climb. The hike up, he said, of the 7,500-foot Mount Sinai is tame in comparison to Mount Everest, where oxygen deprivation impairs physical exertion and judgment itself. And as my students and I neared the top of the mountain, we were passed by two Bedouins carrying a man down the mountain. The man was now unconscious. His sporadic breathing, rattling, and gurgling indicated he was in a critical condition. He was, I suspected, suffering from pulmonary edema, a malady of mountaineering caused by ascending too rapidly and can be fatal unless rapidly taken down to a lower altitude. For a brief moment, I considered halting my ascent and helping the Bedouin gentleman carry the man down the mountain, but my desire to make it to the top checked my impulse. Without further thought, I gave one of them my flashlight and continued upward. Oh, they seem to be doing all right by themselves, I said to myself. The sunrise from the summit was glorious, but it was now overshadowed as I descended and what had transpired below. Not far from the place where we had passed this, these men, a figure draped with a blanket was lying on the ground, two shoes protruding from under the blanket. The man carried by these men was now dead. Whether he died while being carried down or was put down and died, I do not know. I do know, however, that every step down the mountain my conscience was disturbed. What I had found so loathsome in those two Japanese climbers on Everest had been essentially repeated in my own action on Mount Sinai. Boy, we can be so quick to condemn others when we ourselves can be guilty of the same thing. I think though warned against a critical spirit, we must equally be concerned about indifference towards what is evil. I want to close with a quote by C.S. Lewis. I like Lewis. I think you guys know that. He says this, the demand that God should forgive such a person, one bent on evil, while he remains what he is, is based on a confusion between condoning and forgiving. To condone an evil is simply to ignore it, to treat it as if it were good. But forgiveness needs to be accepted as well as offered if it is to be complete. And a man who admits no guilt can accept no forgiveness. You know, that's one of the great problems of the gospel. God says, here's my forgiveness. But unless you and I receive it, it has no impact in our lives. So what are we to get out of this message? Real simple. It's a fine balance between not condemning and not condoning. It's the, it's, it's this Christ-like spirit that says, you know what? I know I'm a person that has feelings as well, but I'm willing to deal with the stuff in my own life in order to help others deal with the stuff in theirs. And when we become like that, we become like Christ. That's what God is aiming for in our lives. How many can see that? That's what he's working on. And I believe that when we get like this, we become more nurturing and more caring and more loving towards people. And we decide, you know, there's some things 
you know, and I'll just say this, we can't change other people. So that's not the goal. The goal is to work on seeing our own lives changed. The people around us will see the growth in our lives. They'll be impacted by that. How many know if you move away from being a critical person to an accepting person, you're going to have a whole different response from people? Anybody know that's true? How many say that's probably true? That'll change. You've changed. They'll change towards you. You want to see change in relationships? Work on you. Let's stand tonight. That's probably my great advice when I have people come to see me about their marriages. I go, you know, here's the problem. You can't change the other person. The only person you can work on is yourself. You can pray for the other person. And after a while, you know what? Sometimes I say to people, what happens if they never change? What are you going to do about it? You know? You're going to have to learn to live with this. Well, yeah, but it's annoying, Pastor. Yeah, it could be. But the problem is maybe God's calling you to be a more loving person. Maybe God's calling you to be a more gracious person, more forgiving. Amen? Ever thought of that? God wants to work on us. So my concern is that you and I develop the skills in human relationships. Amen? How many are saying that, you know, Jesus talks about walking the narrow road. I think we keep thinking, what is this narrow road? How many know it's very difficult to actually neither condemn nor condone? to somehow find that sweet spot where we're doing neither one of those things, that's difficult. You know, I could name situation after situations and some of you are dealing with them and you're going, yeah, I don't want to condemn them, but I certainly don't want to condone this behavior. But I'm put in a hard spot, now what do I do? I could use all kinds of illustrations to bring that out. But here's what I'm going to say to us tonight. Maybe we need to say, God, I want to develop the ability to be discerning. I want to be delivered from having a critical fault-finding spirit. I don't want to be a condemning person, but yet I want to have the wisdom how to neither be condemning nor condoning, to be like Jesus and actually see lives impacted because, number one, they know I'm not condemning them, but they also know I don't agree with them. But they sense I love them. And that even though I disagree with them, they sense I'm still there for them. Isn't that, isn't that tremendous when we can do that? How many say, I'd like to be like that? You're being like Jesus then. So let's pray. Let's ask him for help tonight. I'm going to ask Jesus to help me to be like this. I need help in this area. I'm sure you do too. So let's pray tonight. Say, Lord, would you come? Would your spirit come and fill my heart right now, Lord, and deliver me from being angry or frustrated or critical or fault-finding or blaming others? Deliver me from that spirit, Father. But neither, on the other hand, help me not to be indifferent and apathetic and I condone evil in people's lives. Give me a heart of real compassion that I really care for people, that I'm just like you, Lord, that I can be so wise that when I'm in a context like you were with a woman caught in adultery and people were trying to entrap me, that I was able to say the right things at that moment to show, number one, that I'm not condemning, and number two, not to to express it in such a way that people realize I don't agree with this harmful behavior and that they know that I care deeply for them and that I'm expressing your message of love and grace in the midst of brokenness and hurt. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave tonight.